Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians with your hosts, Cindy Howes and Lizzie No on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You are a gift. Uh, and you are special. Thank you for joining us. Your presence is the best present. That's a cool expression that I just came up with because I'm thoughtful. I feel like that's going to go down in the history of expressions. People are going to love it. It's going to be a hit. What else is going on, Lizzie? Well, by the time you listen to this, I will be on tour with the one and only Sun Little. I am so excited about this tour. It kind of wraps up an insane year of touring for me. But I love Sun Little's music so much. And I am like pinching myself to be on a tour as cool as this. So people should go to sunlittle.com to get tickets and see where they can come see us. So tonight, Lizzie is in St. Paul, um, then Chicago, Ferndale, Michigan. Oh, you're going to be in Pittsburgh on the 12th. So we haven't quite hung out. Oh, yeah. Fairfield, Connecticut, Cambridge, Mass, Sheffield, Mass, Brooklyn, and then finally in Philadelphia. So sunlittle.com slash tour. December 17th is when the tour ends. Check it out. I'm excited to see you in Pittsburgh. And also, I love Sun Little. He is so rad live. He's, he like takes you to a different solar system. It's very fun. I'm so, so excited. Cool. Before we get to our guest today, who is John Calvin Abney, excited for this one, I just want to talk a couple of business things. So we have a newsletter you can sign up for at basicfolk.com. We'll send out a monthly newsletter. It's a great way to keep in touch with us because the algorithm hates us. I signed up for a social media network the other day because everybody's getting off Twitter or people are like want to get off Twitter. Mm -hmm. It was called Mastodon and I signed up for it and then I could not figure it out. And then I closed my phone. That seems hard. Even Amy Mann was tweeting that she couldn't figure out Mastodon. And that woman is so brilliant. So I know if it was hard for Amy, it's going to be impossible for me. But you can find us on all the social media networks, especially the problematic ones at Basic Folk Pod. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say like the most problematic. <laughs> We're not on Parlor. <laughs> yeah, you won't find us in like a WhatsApp thread of fascists. 4chan. Catch me on yeah. 4chan. <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll not be there. Um, anyways, 
Also, if you're listening in real time, we're currently in our fall fundraiser, which you just heard Lizzie and I talk about at the start of the podcast. It's like a for real thing. So if you can make a contribution, go to basicfolk.com slash donate. Thanks. Love you. Okay. Our calendar for the fundraiser is so cute. We had this idea to basically take the concept of like a sexy fireman calendar, but instead do Mm -hmm. like really tasteful photos of folk artists that we love and admire. Um, Plus some really (laughs) good photos of us, your hosts, and my beloved Cole Nielsen designed some really cute little designs for it. It's really good. He was uh, talking to me about the concept. So Cole is Lizzie's partner and he is... A fucking dream. He is a dreamboat. He's he's he might be the cutest man in America. He's the man in our lives. Well, when I saw people's sexiest man alive was like Chris Evans, I was like, but they haven't seen Cole. Right. They didn't get a chance to take a look at Cole. (laughs) Yeah. He's lost in a sea of people in New York. You need to like bring him bring him to the top of the buildings. Yes. This is why we need a Times Square billboard. (laughs) We do, just to promote Cole being cute. That would be amazing. But anyways, he was talking to me about concepts. And I don't know if he came up with this or if you came up with this. And he was like, I don't know, the sexy fireman. It was like hard for, for me to wrap my head around it in, in this calendar. So then he proposed like middle school crushes. Like mm-hmm. if you have a middle school crush on like Marcarelli and you like write in your notebook that you love Marcarelli. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Go for it, guy. You go for it, you guy. Guy, the man of basic folk. You go for it. I was talking to the one man I know. (laughs) The one man I trust. (laughs) Yeah. We are remarkably sexist for um, people that work in the music industry. (laughs) It's kind of a fun spin to work in music and be like, men, I'm not sure. Is it reverse sexism? Um, That doesn't exist. Okay. Are you sure? Yep. Mm -hmm. It's not real. Are you sure? Because for like a real ism, it needs to be backed up by power. So, like, reverse racism doesn't exist because, like, I can be rude as I want to white people, but, like, it's not going to be reinforced by, like, my having all the money and all of the seats in Congress and all of the CEO positions. Like, if I'm racist against white people, it's just, like, me being an asshole. It's like, yeah, Lizzie, you're kind of rude towards white people, aren't you? But it's not like an ism because there's no power behind it. Ditto men towards women. We're just being... We're just being assholes. We're just being assholes, which is fine. And obviously, we're joking. We have men in our lives. Some of my best friends are men, blah, blah, blah. Kidding. You know what's hilarious is that our guest today is a man. (laughs) It's so true. And he's one of my favorite men. His name, John Calvin Abney. He's a true dreamboat and one of the most talented people I know. John grew up in Nevada and Oklahoma and like in all of his music you hear that like dreamy dusty highway soundscape he is a dreamer he's a dreamer and a poet the way that John has made a name for himself in the music industry is by being a shit hot guitar player he has been the sideman for a number of great artists that we are fans of including Samantha Crane and John Moreland But what I brought him on the podcast to talk about is his solo work, which has been like such a thoughtful collection of songs and albums that he's been putting out over the past few years. I first came in touch with his solo work during the pandemic because he did these really sweet live streams back when everyone was just very lonely and like looking for a little bit of comfort and solace. 
He was just this amazing, comforting presence on the internet, sharing his songs and just basically being like an internet friend to a lot of people. Hmm. Um, And I was like, there's something so special about this dude. He has played in my band. He has become a good friend to me. And he is currently on tour with Hanson. Yeah, that's right. Your favorite boy band of the 90s. We had a super thoughtful conversation about his latest solo album, Tourist, that deals with the concept of home when you're a touring musician and a person who has moved around a lot. He is not afraid to like go there on deep spiritual topics like, who am I? How do I deal with the legacy of my father who I've lost? Like he's he's gone through mm. some really big ups and downs and he talks about them all really thoughtfully on his album And he's a great songwriter, a great producer, and had some surprising insights to share on how he arranges and puts together his solo work. The last thing I'll say about John Calvin Abney is that a lot of people claim to be like the hardest working person in music. And I think John actually might be. He is always Mm. on tour. He's always writing. He's always kind of pushing to be a little bit better than yesterday. And so he's a really admirable working musician for me personally and a dear friend and a dreamboat. (laughs) (laughs) Dreamboats only on Basic Folk. We're going to take a listen to a song from John's latest album. This is Call Me Achilles. And then we'll get to our conversation with Lizzie and John Calvin Abney on Basic Folk. my friend for joining me on basic folk i'm not going to try to have that um illusion of journalistic objectivity i'm going to just say at the outset we are buddies we are friends i'm coming in with a strong slant towards you and your music (laughs) (laughs) yes uh true buddies forever. forever john where all did you grow up and do you do you consider any place your hometown? This is a really interesting uh, couple questions because those are two questions that I'm constantly revisiting in my mind and on this last record I just made. But I know. Um, <laughs> uh, I was born in Reno, Nevada, and uh, I grew up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Uh, my dad was a carpenter. My mom was a travel agent and uh we would uh you know we, we didn't have m- much money so we, we usually stayed in the houses that my dad was uh building at the time which was really Whoa. fun and interesting we moved like every five to six weeks it was fun you know kind of wild every five to six weeks for a couple years yeah it was so wild. what kind what what were like during that this is like when you're a little kid you're moving every five to six weeks what were your like prized possessions like if they were like all right john we're moving what were what were the things that you would be like okay i gotta i gotta pack 
Um, I had a copy of Mr. Popper's Penguins. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like my first book. Okay, that, that's a really that, good book. Uh, yeah, I had a speak and spell that was uh, that was uh, passed down throughout many friends. You know, I just ended up getting one from a pal. Oh, I had a stuffed rabbit. Oh, a bunny. A bunny. Okay, so it was all over the Sierra Nevadas. I hear that in your music. Yeah, it was mostly uh, once you pass over Mount Rose, like North Shore Lake Tahoe and the like other parts of, you know, that general area, like Crystal Bay, Kings Beach and stuff like that. And did you did you pray at all? Was your family religious? I did not uh, become remotely religious until um, I moved to Oklahoma with my mom and my brother. Right into God's country. Yeah, when was that? <laughs> that was, uh, I was nine or ten, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. My dad went to jail. And then uh, my mom and my brother and I moved, got moved into this duplex. And I think I was in second or third grade when I got to Oklahoma. Whoa. Yeah, I was around a lot of people uh, you know, uh, who had hell, fire, and brimstone upbringings just being uh, by proxy of being around these throngs of, you know, religiously traumatized kids, you know, I, I ended up getting absorbed into the flock, so to speak. Really? So was that genuine for you? Like, did you feel like you started to believe? That's such a tough question, you know. I feel like I was just horrified and yeah. I wanted to fit in. Okay. And uh, I was a pretty awkward kid and so... I hadn't really exactly started playing music yet. I was really bad at all sports, but I tried them all. You know, I just wanted to like yeah. hang out with people. I just wanted to like you just make wanted friends. to be included. And so you know, I tried being the class co- clown for a while. And my sojourn into religion, into you know what was Christianity at that time, which is mostly just for me, it was going like on Wednesdays to like youth groups and youth group, youth or small groups. Yeah. And then, uh, you know. I feel like for those that are, for the uninitiated, youth group is more fun than small group. Like, I think yes. small group is like, small group is more like Bible study. That's where you like actually sit down and you really dig deep and like, you're going to face some sort of accountability. You may even be Accountability is the word. An accountability partner. partner. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is a person that you talk to if you like have a dirty thought or like you steal a stick a gum like you then you have yes. to like talk to your accountability partner it's like your sponsor in in a 12-step program but they don't actually like necessarily know anything it's more than you do extremely like aa <laughs> <laughs> but for but for young children yes and 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 you know and then you after that you know you go to um you know a youth youth night you know at the church yeah. you know and like There'd a lock-in. Do you ever do a lock-in? Totally. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And then I, I was also um, an initiate camp counselor at a, uh, wow. at a Christian camp in Colcord, Oklahoma. Okay. Well, that's pretty That's pretty deep in for someone who did not believe. I'm not just like trying to like plumb the most traumatic religious depths. I'm actually getting it. I'm getting towards something that has to do with your music. Just trust me. No, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm on board. I, I trust you. I... I um, it was funny enough, like just being around a lot of these kids who were extremely, extremely scared of this concept of hell. Mm-hmm. 
I guess it just didn't stick to me as much, you know. I was mm-hmm. I didn't like wake up in the middle of the night sweating, thinking about you know my sins and stuff. You know, it, it wasn't like that. It was. I just think like having a good ethic, you know, <laughs> just like yeah. doing good things was like always kind of the way to go about it. But these these you know you, you're in these these groups of kids that are just absolutely horrified, and so. I uh I remember just like there, there there's a oh man it, it's the uh, the arc the archetypical um, youth pastor you know yeah and they're really fervent and they're 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 wearing cool clothes and they're charming you know and you're like man I can really believe this guy and then this guy's telling you that you are in absolute danger and your mortal soul is 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 bent for you know the depths of what is it uh hell uh, hell, yeah, hell. yeah yeah hell. <laughs> there's different words <laughs> outer darkness yeah is it son be, of perdition gog and magog yeah yeah, yeah. it's not good no. well <laughs> as like like picture when you're in middle school maybe high school when you're starting to have your first jobs do you remember looking to anyone and thinking like that's a person that's an adult who has a good life like what was your concept of like that's that's a life well done. You know, I think um, I had teachers that were extremely, uh, they, they were inspiring, they were uplifting, and mm-hmm. they were the ones that that stood behind these what I what I thought at the time, you know, these rules for themselves that that allowed them to exist in a way that they were contributing to society and that they were. Um, well, I, you know, and this this can go a bunch of different ways, but like I, I feel like you know my dad was never around, so like male English teachers, mm-hmm. I was just like, oh man, I want to learn from these guys, you know, because yeah. like male role models were mostly just like um, kind intellectual teachers, yeah, yeah. people that were curious, yeah. And but, is that what got you into poetry? When did you start getting into poetry? Wow, I I think I started getting into poetry. Um, I had a, uh, an AP language teacher named Mrs. Pomerantz. What's up, Mrs. Pomerantz? Yeah. Um, she was always letting us read sci-fi and fantasy novels in class, you know, but I feel like poetry was more about my own journey. I was like, oh, poetry, you know, I took a poetry class in high school and, but I think my favorite poets I just found just because I heard about them you know word of mouth you know just in in the general sense you know pop culture zeitgeist thing you know where you know you hear these names floating in the ether and you pull them out you say well who the hell is Dylan Thomas or yeah you know who's E.E. Cummings you know and and then you're all of a sudden you've you've found yourself with a library of books (laughs) yeah you got you there, that's that's what they call like a gateway drug. Yes, without yeah. a doubt. Talk to you can talk to your youth pastor about that one. Oh man, I I I remember reading Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and it unlocked this this, this unbelievable um, series of infinite doors to different pantheons of belief, and uh, it I was highly interested, and so. Yeah. And the this, first decent song I ever wrote was about 
like the first like song beginning to end that had like there's a chorus there's a bridge was about uh steppenwolf amazing hessa is like the that's the dude that's the dude if you're a young songwriter that's like gonna do do that with your life well, that's and, like the first test. And it's so funny because I remember going to, uh, as a, I was training to be a camp counselor at this, at this, mm-hmm. this non-denominational church camp. You know. Non-denominational. Now, is that code for like Unitarian or is that code for like hardcore evangelical? It was pretty hardcore evangelical. Cause that can yeah. go both ways. They just didn't, they didn't mind which, um you know, which flock, which denomination that you came from. Yeah. They were just like, you know, praise the Lord. Yeah. Carry and, on. And, and uh, evangelize, you know, carry, <laughs> carry, carry the good word. Um, but I remember bringing this newfound understanding of uh, the story of Siddhartha and, you know, his, mm-hmm. you know, he, he becomes a, a drunk and a gambler and, you know, deals with all of these, you know, these, materialistic and sexual and you know all of these different things that that you know we fall prey to you know right <laughs> and um and and how he came out of it and you know his religious awakening and stuff and so all of a sudden buddhism made a lot more sense to right. me because it spoke to um uh the shortcomings of of humanity you know I, everybody mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't, it, it didn't, it didn't offer this, this concept of, um, uh, eternal damnation. And so I remember bringing my newfound belief, you know, in, in, in the Buddhist pantheon to Christian camp. And I just remember having, you know, all my, uh, all the counselors were like, don't go there. Don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. And <laughs> it's just so funny because I was so interested, you know, yeah. I, I just read, uh, Siddhartha and I just got Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix. Oh, dang. And so they were just, they couldn't put a rain, they couldn't put the reins on me. I was, it, it, that's too late. I was flying off the handle, you know. Once you get those two. <laughs> so were you already playing instruments at that time? I'm curious about what was the first instrument that came into your life where you were like, oh, yeah, this is something that's for me. This isn't just something that like other people do. I got an acoustic guitar when I was 11 years old on my 11th birthday. And my dad from jail told my mom that not to have an, not to get me an electric guitar until I learned how to play the acoustic guitar. Smart. And so, um, I remember taking a, like some lessons from a dude that played in a Led Zeppelin cover band named Scott. Yes. Named Scott at the local music go round. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I learned, Stone Temple Pilots and Led Zeppelin and uh, like Secret Agent Man and oh my god all that stuff and I, every time I'd come home and learn a song it was like uh, I would just play it over and over and over and over over and over again you know drive mm-hmm. my mom crazy but then uh, yeah there was some time in like uh, not in college in high school that I found music theory and I like really dug into it a lot and all of a sudden I found like pentatonic scale and I was like freaking out because all of a sudden I had unlocked this plateau of like being able to improvise and like it was crazy but it was also a curse because I I uh, didn't really write songs until like my early 20s 
Oh, really? I tried. You know, I, I had a couple bands, but I wasn't like really writing songs. I was mostly writing riffs to play in a band so I could show off. Oh. Yeah, I was I was I was a guitar dude in high school. I'd like carry out, it, carry out my back, my electric guitar, carry on my back, and run scales to back of class after I finished my tests and stuff. <laughs> they let your teachers let you bring your guitar into class. Oh yeah, yeah. What? Mm-hmm. What was going on there? <laughs> well, I don't know. That would not have been allowed at all. Yeah. In my high school, it was a sports school, so uh, it 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 was a you know sports was our our school's big thing. Tulsa Memorial High School, go Chargers. So what was it like to not be a part of that? Do you feel like you had to like double down on being guitar guy because yes. you weren't a part of that central oh, thing? Oh yeah, and I would wear my hemp jewelry and my like Buddha t-shirts and you know grew my hair out down past my chest, wore bell bottoms, you know, and I was just like cool hippie dude and like ran around the school, kind of you know sometimes, you know, in a different um, state of mind. Wow, do you feel like there was room for that in? um your community's concept of what a a boy was or do you feel like it cast you a little bit outside of the like male culture well this was a funny thing because i felt like the alternative to the macho you know Mm -hmm. the baseball and football and basketball guys because they all you know there was this uh uh what's the word i'm looking for um Inevitable. We are buddies, but I can't read your. Mind. I know. I'm sorry. In the in the inevitable <laughs> pipeline between you know, <laughs> you know, the sports teams and the cheer, uh, the people who are in cheer and uh, yeah, you know, they were all they would all just you know pair off, you know. Yeah, that is inevitable. I was actually in a sorority in college, and and from time to time they would literally tape us to the guys in the fraternity. Yeah. So they re- it really is. <laughs> It's, they, it, they, it, it comes with its own roll of duct tape, <laughs> the patriarchy. <laughs> That's true. And, uh, you know, I did not, um, once I found, I, oh, this is also funny, is that I made guitar pretty much part of my personality. And like, it was like, I, I was just the dude that played guitar because yeah. there was no other guitar players at the school at that time. So I was just like this, this anomaly. I was... The rock and in roll Oklahoma? Kid. Yeah, at this at this at this particular high school in my, especially in my class. I mean, there were people that were that played guitar, but I took it to the limit, you know. I made it <laughs> everybody else had like hobbies and other things. Yeah. I was like, guitar defines me as a person. And so I'd like carry my Stratocaster to school and, you know, wink at everybody and but it was so funny because I had this really weird thing that it was like I was an emo kid that dressed like I was from the 60s. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, imagine me like donning rope sandals and hemp jewelry and having really long oh, hair, but playing dashboard. I can imagine it. But playing dashboard confessional and like, you know, uh, gosh, who else? Uh, something corporate and stuff like that. Something you know? corporate. You ever get into say anything? That was one of my big uh, I didn't. passions in high school. I didn't. Too angry? Too mean? You know, I think I just, um, I, 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 I didn't allow myself to branch out very much. Okay. And I'm yeah, it was to just do down, as I down the older. line. <laughs> yeah, 100%, you know. I mean, hell, I didn't find Towns Van Zandt until I was like 22 or something, you know. Or, uh, 
Yeah. You know, I mean, just there was so much music I just didn't allow myself to dig into because I, mm-hmm. I, I thought there was uh, I like what I like. I don't need to find any new bands. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another another uh, curse I bestowed upon myself at a young age. Getting into a groove is similar to falling into a rut. It, it, that is a, I'm going to put that one in my pocket. Ask a, ask a wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I want you and our listeners to know that I'm currently recovering from COVID, which is part of why my voice sounds bananas. And I, I just have no filter. My brain is very foggy. Um, so I feel like I could only do this interview with a good buddy who is understanding of the ups and downs of life. <laughs> I, I I accidentally fell down a flight of stairs last night. <laughs> so, John, we agreed off air that we that I wasn't going to bring that up. Uh, that's John it. is wearing like a little hand brace. <laughs> we are both a little worse for wear, but that's that is music life. Okay, here's what I want to know. Like, actually, leading into that, when was your first time going on tour for an extended period of time? I was, and what was the context? I was um, just graduated college, and me and Samantha Crane were together. I followed her to Europe for this. Yeah, my first tour was a European tour. <laughs> because, oh, shut the fuck up! Well, we were opening for first I aid can't. kit. We were opening oh, for opening first, for first. That was your first. I wasn't tour. playing though. I wasn't playing. <laughs> I just, oh. I just went, I just went with Sam. Oh, you were just a groupie. Yeah. That's just... so feminist. I love hearing men talk about riding the coattails of a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And so I, I, uh, yeah, I, I remember, you know, buying a ticket to Europe and just flying to Europe and following Sam around and, and just seeing, you know, these huge wild venues and just being, you know, it, it was a it was a massive learning experience. It was, it was, what stood out to you the most? Like, what was surprising to you about what it was actually like to be on tour? Um, I think a lot of it was the travel in general, mm-hmm. is the logistics of of getting around and finding yourself in uh, well, where you need to be. That is a battle that I, a lot, I think a lot of people don't get. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people also think that when you go on tour, people think you're on vacation. Mm-mm. They're like, oh, man, you, sure you went everywhere. <laughs> you went everywhere. How was it? I'm like, uh, I was I was traveling the whole time. I didn't see a damn thing. Yeah. I will go to some like some of the most beautiful places in the country and like not see the main thing about that place. Absolutely. You know what I mean? The, like doubt. people will ask you, you, you don't see the Liberty Bell when no. you're in Philly. No. You see the Holiday Inn. Yeah. And, and you see the gas station, and, and, the and you see the place. venue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth. So, okay, I want to talk about your first album. Can I? Let me give you a preview of what, some musical things I want to talk to you about. Of course, yeah. I want to talk about your first solo album, Far Cries and Close Calls, and then jump into more some more touring and travel stuff. Yeah. So. What was your vision for that first album? Because there is one before that that's out of print and not currently on streaming services. Is that the EP? No, there's a rec- <gasps> my first full length was called Better Luck. 
Okay, well, I have not had the chance to listen to it I'll because send it over I to you. But couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> Damn, I it, thought I did all the research and I no, I've listened to all the EPs and that's I was okay. Wrong. Yeah, I put out a bunch of records uh, as John Calvin and not John Calvin Abney when I was in like college, and they're all really bad. But I was learning, you know, snapshots of a of, of an artist. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> but but better luck was my first one. And uh, Far Cries um, was my second one. Yeah. Oh my god. But but better luck, better luck, and uh, Vice Versa Suite were um, recorded in the same year. Really? Oh, Vice Versa Suite is so pretty. Thank you. In the key of E major. Yeah, I, that that record has a really funny story. Um, Tell us. I was in San Francisco. Um, why was I in San Francisco? Oh, I was on tour with the uh, M Lock with Porter, and uh, Max was living at in Berkeley at the time, and um, he had a piano in his house, and uh, I would just like you know I, there was like three days off where we were just gonna be like doing rehearsing and hanging out and stuff, and um, yeah, I, I just I got a call from my friend Jacob Winnick, who was uh, an engineer I'd worked with previously on Samantha Crane's uh, records, Kid Face, Under Thorn Branch and Tree, both mm -hmm. of those records. And um, we did those at uh, Tiny Telephone Studio B and Studio A in mm -hmm. uh, Potrero Hill in uh, San Francisco. Jacob just called me and said, hey man, I know you're in town right now. Um, do you wanna like come record a song? Like we'll just like stay up late and record a song. And I said, well, why don't we just do an all-nighter and record a record? Yeah. I've got like two or three songs. And then I took all the melodies from all those songs and made two piano pieces. As like, I like, love those like instrumentals. Piano medleys. <laughs> I, wish, I wish you would do more of those because I know you play a bajillion instruments, but I think that when you, you know, when you're like making songs. Yes capital S for yeah. an album, there's pressure to have, it has to have lyrics. It a has decent to have formula. Like, yeah. The, the format, it can be restricting. And I think that that EP is really fun because it's like when you call something a suite instead of a, an album, yes. you have a little bit more freedom. I thought that was beautiful. Well, and, and like that, that was, um, that was one of the most freeing projects I, I ever mm -hmm. conceived because I didn't have a plan and I wasn't going to record a record. Right. And then Jacob called me and said, Hey, you want to come in and record a song? And I showed up with two piano pieces and four songs. And I said, let's record an EP. And so we wow. stayed up eight hours, nine hours straight into the wee hours in the morning and just cut nine songs or cut, cut, cut those six songs. Well, two, two piano pieces and four songs. And, um, yeah, it was just me and Emma Lockwood Porter doing live takes. It was really stunning. It was wild. And uh, there was a piano there that was just one of my favorite the cable pianos. It had this it was massive grand upright and uh, had this felt bar that came down in front of the, the hammers that really made these really beautiful, muffled, dulcet tones. Yeah, it was really special. But yeah, I listened to that. I listened to that and it's... um. 
it was just a burst of creativity. It, I was not judging myself. I was not um, in like some this miasma of ego and and um, and worry. You know, I just made the record. It was just done. Like we went and got coffee that morning, and we'd stayed up all night, and it was just done. And I didn't. Oh even, my like, god! Three days before, I didn't. I had no plans to make a record. What an amazing feeling. Yeah. And he said, do you want to record one song? And I was like, oh, I, I remember I was sitting at Max's piano at, uh, he used to live in like an old, old, uh, big building that was split off so a bunch of people can live in it. Mm -hmm. Looked like an old fraternity or sorority house. Um, and like, you know, like 10 people lived there. It was all Max's, you know, best yeah. friends and their siblings and stuff. And I remember Max came up and he's like, dude, you should write a suite. Yeah, <laughs> and I said, yeah. "What's a suite?" You know, I looked it up. <laughs> yeah, because you were in a suite. Well, and having having no you know concept, especially you know, I loved uh, I loved classical music, but I had zero concept of you know any of the the terminology or anything. Um, but you came around to it another way by feeling your way through the logic of theory instead of finding out the names for things yes. and then finding out what they were yes. which in my opinion is a, is a much uh, more sustainable way of learning music I'm gonna well let me ask you something about that moment in time and I imagine you've had similar moments of time where you had to distinguish what's the difference between who I am as a musician that supports M. Lockwood Porter versus who am I when we're rolling tape on a John Calvin Abney recording? Like, are there times and like, and nowadays you have, you are such a great collaborator and like a really insightful collaborator Thank you. That's with John funny. Moreland and you've played in my band and yeah. there is something very special about the like puzzle piece attitude that you bring when you're supporting yeah. as a guitar player um, but then your recordings sound so like uniquely like you. So is there like a brain switch that you turn on where you're like, okay, I'm not guitar player, John, I'm songwriter, John. What is that <laughs> mentally like for you? Well, this, this is, this is actually a really funny, I, I have this thing that I don't think, you know, I don't tell a lot of people this, I, I guess it's, it's open information, but I don't play lead guitar on any of my own records. Well, Yeah. Other people play lead guitar on my records. I don't play lead on my records. That is such a <laughs> hot scoop. <laughs> yeah, I didn't play lead on Far Cries. I didn't play any lead. Well, they're often very piano forward. Yeah. And like synth forward. And it's all about your voice and often like double doubles and maybe triples of your voice. Yeah, I just was never particularly a <clears throat> a good singer in my in my eyes but then as, as I got older I realized that my softer voice is my more expressive voice yeah um, but I really wanted to be a rock singer forever but I just couldn't do it it's, just, it's not in my it's not well maybe maybe it's still in there somewhere but my soft voice is far more expressive and to get you know more uh, substance out of it in a recording you know doing double and triple track vocals has always been um you know, I was a huge Elliott Smith fan. Yeah. You know? and I, I never understood how the hell does he get his voice to sound so like haunting, watery you know? and dense. Yeah. yeah. And then, you, you know, you start hearing it in other people's recordings. And, um, yeah. Every time I ever heard it, I always thought that was such a cool technique. And so uh, I, I relied heavily on that. 
and still do. But um, yeah, I don't play guitar in any of my own records. I, I, um, I mean, I do. I, I play rhythm guitar in my own records. But uh, yeah, I always have other people playing lead. And that, that's kind of a way <clears throat> that has allowed me to um, be a little bit more um, compositional instead of improvisational. Expound on that. Uh, when I'm hired as a guitar player um, or a pianist, you know, there are parts I play, but I, I am often playing um, improvisational parts that are based around the chords and the vocal melody, of course, mm -hmm. and what everyone else is doing in the band. And, uh, you know, like when I when you and I play together, it, it's uh, I really sink into what you're doing you know, what, 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 I'll listen to the records and I try to think, well, if we're a trio and Barry's playing bass, you know, and yeah. I'm playing guitar and Lizzie's playing harp or playing guitar and singing, then how can I take from, you know, parts of the recordings, instruments that aren't currently present? How can I put that into what we're doing yet still fill the position of a lead guitar player? Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm, I've always been a huge fan of, uh, uh, guys like David Rawlings and Rawlings. Kenneth Pattengill because mm -hmm. uh, they're so um, they play guitar in such a way that echoes uh, a, a pianist you know there's mm -hmm. but it's still um, in the in the spirit of a guitar player and uh, mm -hmm. I just eat that up <laughs> yeah because <laughs> so, you have to be a spider web instead of instead of a sword yes but when you're a when you're the songwriter you have to be the central one thing that other people build around. Yes. And it's it's very interesting to see you do both of those at varying times um, in your musical life. I think it's a fascinating thing. And some people are way better at one than the other. And you're one of the people that I know that does both very well. I think it's an interesting mental division to have to draw. And, and, and it is, you know... Um... I, I, and it's so funny, like, like having somebody else play lead guitar on your music because I know what I would do for my right. songs. I know what I would do for my songs. But um, to have somebody come in and play guitar in a way that I would not play guitar brings mm -hmm. um, refreshing change to like you know my compositions. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. And, and uh, you know, Moreland and I have always talked about it. You know, I, I think I played my first uh, guitar solo on my new record tours. Yeah, on Fullman, at the end of Fullman Friend. Yeah. Okay, so how did that come about? Did it feel weird to break your own rule? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, okay, finally. <laughs> well, yeah, I just played the vocal melody mostly with some, yeah. like, embellishments and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was... It, it, uh, it also came at, you know, at a time where I was not, uh, well, we were, you know, you know, waist deep in, in the pandemic and uh, wading through, you know, uh, loss of uh, income and um, isolating ourselves mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I feel like me playing lead <laughs> on my own record was also... Um, born out of necessity because mm -hmm. Moreland and I played all the instruments on that record. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I just, I just knew I could do that part, I guess. And I didn't yeah. want to 
call someone and be like, hey, man, can you do me a solid and play a guitar solo on this? I was like, I'm just going to do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then like have to and then have to get back to them. Like, actually, that's not what we wanted. Yeah. And then also, you know, take their time and, you know, have, you know, yeah. I, I want to make sure people are compensated when they're playing yeah. with me and stuff like that. So it's just a matter of, um, yeah, I was just born out of necessity, but it felt good. <laughs> yeah. Congrats. You've, you've made your debut. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You finally got hired on your for your own gig. Amazing. Uh, I, I want to talk more about this new record, Tourist. So you've said that it's... Have you said that it... Or did I just assume that it's kind of a companion? Yeah. Or the other side of the mirror to Familiar Ground, yes. which came out in 2020. Yes. Okay. So it's a lot of reflections, just to, you know, kind of prime our listeners. Like, it's some really sweet and sad reflections on what home is what it means to be a stranger what it's like to have that life on on the road yes um what were you trying to get across on tourist that you didn't touch on familiar ground familiar ground um was also born out of uh you know, I, I, I cut both those records during the pandemic, but mm-hmm. they were two very separate times of the pandemic. Um, yeah. Familiar Ground. Also, these records are not about the pandemic. They're, they're not considered like pandemic records. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, though some of like the lyrical quality lends itself to isolation. Um, but Familiar Ground um, was me missing a lot of these places, uh, missing a lot of these people. Um missing the normality I'd established in my career. You know, what I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I, w- w- what normality we can, we can even derive or, uh, you know, coax out of a musical career in the, you know, year 2022, <laughs> 2020, Jesus. you know, but, um, you know, no yeah. And so now for the first time in six years, I'd been, I'm home. Mm-hmm. I've got nothing on the books. Calendars, been you know completely wiped clean i'm at home and i am completely alone with my thoughts <laughs> you know and so i've got I've jesus got, take the wheel yeah amen but you know i i uh i found myself missing these places that i i felt maybe like i had taken for granted you know hmm. you know like we said you know you, you can't go to Philly and go see the Liberty Bell because we have an eight hour drive and yeah. we uh, haven't eaten all day and sound check is an hour ago, <laughs> Yeah, you know? And so, um, familiar ground, um, was also, it also, uh, actually I've never said this on live, but familiar ground was some of my dad's last words to me. He said, I'm really looking for some familiar ground. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, what a concept to be, to find yourself, uh, in a place, um, where you feel, uh, you know, safe and warm, sheltered from the storm, you know? Uh, and so, uh, that, that that's so interesting. I, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you said that I was listening. I was re-listening to that song, Familiar Ground last night. Yeah. And, you know, my friend and a friend of the pod, um, Patrick Haggerty just passed away yes. a couple days ago. And I just started thinking so much about Patrick when I was listening to that song. And I felt like it was a song that took a lifetime 
to create it. There's a lot of life in that song. And it reminds me of some, some of what I love about um, Bob Dylan, because it's like one of these really formal folk songs that has such deep tenderness in it. Yes. Um, That's one of my favorite songs of yours that I, I, I could sense that there was like a real, tenderness in there and i can tell you two things that make it even more tender <laughs> is that song oh, is completely no. about my father yeah um and just what he was dealing with near the end of his life and just the general just my relationship with him over time too you know mm-hmm. and uh i had never mined those depths before about that part of my life you know hmm. especially as like why a, not um i wasn't ready yeah, I mean, it was such a big thing. Also, you know, I <laughs> singing about those things. It, this is funny, but um, I never wanted my mom to hear them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, there, you know, that was a that was a uh, like a boundary I had to make because I wasn't sure. Now, now I'm feeling more comfortable talking about you know how I grew up and where you know the things that happened to my family and things like that. And she's a, she's comfortable with it too. You know, she's my best friend too. I love her. But uh, I just, I was looking out for her sort of because I didn't want to plumb those depths, you know. But um, uh, in this next part, uh, this, this is, there's a funny part and a touching part. The funny part is that, um, or the, the, the touching part first is that um, I got, I went and visited my dad with uh, uh, down uh, where he was living at the time in Florida. And uh, I brought with me a, a classroom like a little french classroom tape recorder mm-hmm. a cassette tape recorder and i recorded us hanging out talking and playing guitar for like four hours so i just have like you know just tape after tape after tape you know of my dad and i and uh at a couple points um my dad's just playing guitar on these tapes you know and he's like you can hear him giggling in the background and, you know um it's cool, you know, and, and him and I hadn't done that in, in years, maybe six or seven years, you know. And so uh, I brought these tapes home, and uh, after he passed away, I didn't think twice about it. You know, I just had these tapes, and occasionally I'd get him out and listen to them, you know, mm-hmm. give him a good cry. It was part of the grieving process, you know. But um, I, I digitized them because I was afraid that the tape was going to degrade. So I, I digitized all four hours. And so (laughs) during the pan, you know, during, during the beginning of, you know, being at home, I was just thinking of things I could do. So I digitized these tapes and listened to all four hours, you know, just like, it was like hanging out with my dad. So Moreland and I, uh, ran, um, parts of these tapes through, um, through a, a bunch of different effects processors and all the ambience on that song is my dad makes me kind of want to cry <laughs> but you know it, but you know it's, it's a beautiful yeah. thing it's like my dad's like there he is yeah He's so yeah and he yeah. always you know i always wanted him to play on a record with me so um i i ended up getting to record you know digitize these tapes and then so all like the cool magic kind of swirly stuff in the background is just yeah time manipulated and heavily you know roomed out uh tapes of my dad playing guitar now, the funny thing is that um, my dad's name is John Calvin Abney Jr. And my name is John Calvin Abney III. Whoa. But I don't delineate that on my records. So, you know, my stage name isn't John Calvin Abney III. It's John Calvin right. Abney. 
And so, well, Barry Stevenson is a junior, and his little baby is the third. Well, I so we got I, so many generations put, in this band. I put on the record. It says, you know, John Calvin Abney Jr. It's his first album credit of all time. My dad's, you know, it says John yeah. Calvin Abney Jr. Acoustic guitar. <laughs> And so there was this small, you know, battalion of people on the internet that was like, does he have kids? <laughs> Is <laughs> he old son. enough to have like a son playing guitar on a record? And so like, you know, people were like, who's, is John Calvin, do you have a son? So like, it was like this thing where like I had, you know, everyone thought I had a kid. So <laughs> I was like, no, it's my you dad. You know what? <laughs> you can't be sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Just Josh and just Josh and that, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. And it, I, I, uh, yeah, that was a, a really fun way to, and that song is in such a way that, um, you know, my dad gave me my first uh, copy of Blood on the Tracks and that record was so formative to me. And that song is so in the school of, yes. you know, thir 30 verses, no chorus and a repeating guitar line, you know. Well, you know me, <laughs> I love a million verses, no chorus. Like, don't even, don't even hint to me about a bridge. Yeah, who needs them? <laughs> When when I have to have a chorus, sometimes I'll just throw in an ooh ah. Yeah. That. Oh, it's great. Or ah. Highly effective. Let's talk about the sounds on your new album. Um, it's kind of futuristic, like particularly the drum palette that you're painting with. It's kind of '90s. It's kind of futuristic. Yes. Um, how did you like rein in all of the pop? and rock and hip hop influences that are in your brain yeah. and like dial in what the percussive sounds were going to be on this new record. Well, I was always a huge fan of JJ Kale and his yeah. use of the FR1 rhythm ace that, you know, just, yeah. the, just the classic, you know, boom, click, you know, Moreland and I both had a, a, we both have an original FR1. We both also been, messing around with um, SP 404s, mm -hmm. which is, you know, hip hop was such a massive influence on Moreland and I both. We just thought, you know, yeah, let's, let's just put 909s and 808s. And, and it was, it was really an exploratory set of sessions because um, also Moreland and I were never in the same room. They were all done from our own studio. So, so how did you pass things back and forth? What does it look like? So uh, how do you try something new? Like you have a you have your basic tracks and then you want to add X effect. How do you get it back and forth and share a process of feedback with your collaborator? I'm really interested in these remote collaboration processes. Well, Moreland also had a killer. He's a killer drummer. He was really getting his drum sounds dialed in at home. It was a good way for him to like find his favorite drum sounds by playing on tourist. Basically we both used Logic Pro. I had not used a, anything but a four track tape machine at home for years, you know? Yeah. But I grew up using um, Sonic Foundry Acid in like 2003, you know? In tech ed class, you know, we would all like, you know, sit freak out and take turns sitting at these computers trying to like figure out audio, you know, without having any idea that I would be doing this for a living. You know, one day. Moreland had just bought a new uh, computer and becoming more, uh, doing more engineer work um, uh, in, a, in a higher quality and uh, sonic quality. 
because God knows that dude rocks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I I've been meaning to comment that it is about time that John Moreland started creating some music of quality. <laughs> and and you can quote me on that. You can let him know I said that. <laughs> he gave me the computer that he recorded in the throes on. I had never used a Mac before. On March 14th, when isolation lockdown was about to happen, we were already loaded up and we were pulling out of the driveway to go on tour. It was one of those things where he was just like, tour's canceled. He was like, we'll take this computer record some music at home i'll hit you up later and so i just like went home and like i had this computer now and all this time <laughs> so Whoa. i i um i bought a copy of logic pro mm -hmm. how much does that cost i think it's 300 bucks like 290 bucks something like that and i downloaded it and i began figuring out how to use it but um i was so used to doing um you know, one take tape stuff, you know? And so it was really cool to be able to have a brand new palette to work with just to just go absolutely nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just to, it kind of makes it hard to tell when something's done, when yeah. you can re-record over and over and add layers upon layers. Um, there was an old adage. It, I, it creates a new problem. Yes. Well, and that's an old adage I remember hearing. Uh, you met Britton Bisonhurts when we yes. recorded... Uh, down there at Ramble Creek, uh, he told me, he's like, you never finish a record. You just abandon it. It was amazing because I could just say, Moreland, hey, I did I did guitar and Mellotron and a couple vocal takes. I'm sending it over. And I would just Dropbox it to him. You know, these like 10 gigabyte project files, you know, they take a while yeah. to upload. And, and then he'd say, cool, man. Hey, this week I did drums and I sequenced some 808s and I also added like a really weird, you know, whacked out flute sample or something. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, cool. And he'd send it over and I'd be like, cool. I retract guitar better. Here's a harmony idea, you know? And so we, we ended up doing that for a few months. That's an amazing and, and really futuristic way to create an album. Yeah. And thank you for explaining that because I think it's really fun to talk about literally how records are made yeah and we're now in an era where like especially because of the pandemic it's become this um competitive advantage to be able to create music in different rooms yes you know you're not in the same room with people and it does take away something sacred but it adds something too yes and and i was always of the mindset like hey let's just bust out this record in six days do everything live overdub mix it quick put it out I want to talk about Call Me Achilles. Yeah. Um, it's got that Clapton groove. I'm going to say J.J. Kale. Yes, go, 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 go. Because Clap, uh, Clapton lifted all that from J.J. Kale. Okay, I'm. thank you for setting the record straight. That's what Basic Folk is all about. But it's like this hyper-masculine format. Yes. Is all what I'll say. There's yes. so many songs that are like that. Like, they call me the gangster of love. Totally. But, but... Call Me Achilles is not that. No. Can you peel back some of the layers for me? Do you get what I'm driving at? Like, yes. What absolutely. are the What are the layers of that song? Well, and that song is the whole concept of that song is is masculine, you know. Uh, but it, it comes from a relationship that wasn't quite working out, and also the name comes from the fact that uh, while I was making records uh, at the beginning of all of the. Uh, the COVID isolation, I uh, injured both my Achilles tendons from stress running. <laughs> and so, <laughs> <laughs> and 
And so I was like, you know, I'd like finish dinner and be like, you know, I'm going to go run 10 miles. Yeah. Or like get up in the morning and be like, I'm horrified. I think I'm going to run five more miles. Just being generally worried and nervous. <laughs> I'm not but, judging you because I've done it. But yeah. I, <laughs> I was isolating at my mom's house because I had been exposed to COVID and I couldn't go spend Christmas with my family. So I watched my mom's house in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I set up all of my recording equipment in my old bedroom, which is my mom's office now. But the lyrics, yeah, it's, it's comical. You know, the, the second verse is a lot more about uh, a, a gal I was, I was seeing at the time. I was, all, I was always into mythology. So I said, let's just take it to its logical limit and let's just cut a track. Part of why I need to get you out of this interview is because you're about to fly to Australia to go on tour with some with a a real promising up and coming Oklahoma band called Hanson. Yes. Um can you give <laughs> me a peek inside what that tour is like? Like com- do a little compare contrast. What is a Hanson tour like in comparison to a John Calvin Abney solo tour? And my second question about them is, do you think they've cracked like the secret to longevity and happiness? They, they had they, they had a good handle on their music business at a young age. And I think they were just around the right people who instilled in them a um, a sense of this is the long game. We don't want to burn out, you know, mm. play the long game, you know. And uh, they've all, yeah, they're, they're all really talented musicians. They, they really kick ass live. Um, they do. I went to I went to see their show when you opened for them. Yeah. <laughs> I was blown away. I've act, I've really never seen I've never seen fans as uniformly stoked. Yes. And blessed. Yes. Like everyone got, just got like a 10 out of 10 experience. It was awesome. Everybody go see John Calvin Abney when he's on tour with Hanson with his own solo work which is so phenomenal. I think that tourist is like a really reflective and beautiful album. It's been a friend to me lately. Thank you. I'm really glad that you came on the podcast. Um, do you have a moment to do a brief lightning round? Without the a doubt. Ru- yeah, the rules are like, don't ask any questions. Just like answer first thing that comes okay, to your mind. You got it. All right. What's your must-have snack in the tour van? Potato chips. What item of clothing is most you? A black sweater. What is your most useful non-musical skill? I I know a lot about mythology. Who is your celebrity crush? Kirsten Dunst. Ooh, that's a really, really good one. Yeah. Just to comment. Um, in the movie of your life, during the scene where the hero run towards their lover in the rain to reconcile after a long fight, what song is playing? Uh, Thank You by Led Zeppelin. (laughs) (laughs) If you were a dog, what type of dog would you be? I I would be a uh, a lab. A lot of energy. Um, Favorite Elliot Smith song? Uh, In the Lost and Found. What's your blood type? A positive, I think. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes. John Calvin Abney, you've been a wonderful guest. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much for taking the time to talk with us. 
uh, before your Hanson tour. Oh, Lizzie, thank you for having me. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy Howes. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. On the SiriusXM app, you can search for Basic Folk. Find us at basicfolk.com or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks. Bye. Bye.